Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Another episode of Unfiltered coming your way. This is episode number 51, which I believe was that the number that Mel Rojas wore as a Met? Was it? Did he wear 51? Uh, he was somewhere in the. I think he did at some point in his career. Did he with the Mets? I think he might have. So. Right? I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. Which is you know not a good way to start because we're not talking about overrated Mets that we can't stand today. It is another and appreciate you unfiltered band top ten list. It is uh, the top ten most underrated Mets of all time. Brian Wright is joining me. You can get him at Brian Wright eighty six on Twitter. Uh, author and a uh, historian and way smarter than I am in terms of the, the older days of the Mets before uh, he and I had to look like we carried any age. Although I think both of us actually, Brian could still play the younger brother on a sitcom. Yes. I often get, uh, and thank you uh, for, for having me on Casey. It's great to be with you. Uh, we're definitely trying this again. I had some audio issues, but we're trying this again. It's, it's going to, even though it's Mel Rojas's number, with the episodes, I think it's not a bad omen. Um, but yeah, no, I, I've always been told I look younger than I am, uh, and I will uh, take that as a compliment. Oh yes, yeah. It, I always say the difference between like when you want to really know when somebody and I bartended many years ago, but you want to know when somebody's using a fake ID. If if you try and ask somebody for ID and they get excited like I do now then you know they're definitely of age. If they look like they're terrified or worried, it's because they're not. Because everybody who's actually that age, who you if you think I'm 21, you're like my favorite person ever. So, uh, you know, even, even though, you know, clearly looking at you on the screen, I know I need to shave. Um, I, I want to get into a, a number of things here. And, of course, get us at Casey Stern at Brian Wright 86 I'm sure you're going to have a lot of different, you know, debates and, and things about these lists. You know, one thing that I did, and I'm happy that – we're doing this, and we are doing this here for the, the second time, but it'll feel like the first. Ironically, it would have been Armande Benitez's number, and now it's Mel Rojas. And really, maybe I should have just made it Benny Agbayani in the middle, who's not on our list, so don't get upset, Met fans. But I went back, and I was watching a lot of the highlights from, like on YouTube, from the 99 season, from 2000, from 86, from where some of our guys were today. And it kind of it brought up some new stories and things that I want to bring up. But I want to start here. And, and that is how much I'm sure, you know, like I do a lot of Yankee fans. Right. And because of all the rings and all the history, they have more than we do. They have more history than we do of greatness. How much do you think, having gone through this, that it's underrated just how much greatness has passed through this franchise from maybe from outsiders or people who don't realize it? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, not only from like Yankee fans' perspectives, but like just other general baseball fans. I, I mean, I have people I know who, when I tell them I I love the Mets, uh, they and I tell them about you know a World Series that they were in in like 2015. They look at me and going, "They were like I tell them about a World Series the Mets won in '86." They go, "They did," and it's it's like people just uh, they have this perception. Um, and partially true that the Mets are just the team that just always falls flat on its face when there have been times of not only great teams, but great players. Uh, and especially like from the pitching side, I mean, I would put the Mets pitchers up against the Yankees. And I feel like, you know, the Mets best pitchers up against the Yankees best, best pitchers all time with obviously more time to, uh, to pick through. And I'd be pretty confident in the Mets 
you know, arms that I would put out there versus the Yankees. So there are, yeah, I think there is sometimes a misperception, misperce- uh, uh, um, I, like I said, sometimes correct, sometimes exaggerated, uh, that the Mets have had great players come through. It just, I think it always gets overrided by uh, the failures. And, you know, a lot of the people that we're going to have on our list today are actually really great baseball players who had really good careers, but they seem to be somehow underrated in Mets lore. And then there's that whole thing, are they underrated as players? Are they underrated as Mets? Just to use the Yankees as an example, because I don't want to even accidentally give away any of our list yet. A guy like Bernie Williams, to me, is not overrated at all. He's not a Hall of Famer, and I never thought of him that way and even looking at the numbers. But is he a Yankee all-time player? He is, and he should be accepted and and lauded and, and applauded for all of that. There are a lot of Mets that nationally I think we we don't realize on the outside and even inside the fan base we don't realize how great they are. The one thing I wanted to say before we get to this list that I thought was was important to point out, and I'm curious if you're this way, because we're seeing it, just take this year as an example, right? Like, even the stories of, you know, Vogelbach, and who knows what kind of moments these guys will have when we get there, right? The Luis Guillormes, and you, you think about, you know, really, let, let's be fair, like w- what Adovito has been, and he's been brilliant, right? There are going to be a lot of guys that we kind of, you don't forget them until somebody reminds you. It says, oh, my God, remember that guy? And that's what was great about Old Timers Day. How about how many godsend kind of a players? Like, just to give you some of the guys I was thinking about this morning, when I was thinking about bringing this up on the show today when we did this better version of it, of course. Um, I was thinking of, like, the the Melvin Morris, right? It, before the trade, and you think about the run in 99, and people forget like how big he was in that run, right? And into the playoffs in a game 162 to get to 163 and all of that sort of stuff. You think about, I even think through like you know, some of the odd mid years, like Sean Dunstan during a very small appearance with the Mets, including, by the way, a game I was at, they had fireworks night last night. Fireworks night in the late 90s, and it might have been 99, the biggest comeback in Met history. I was at that game against the Braves where they scored, I think it was eight runs with two outs in the eighth inning or whatever. And Dunstan had a big at bat. Bubba Trammell, remember him when he came over? Like, how many times do you sit there with like fellow Met fans and like, I always say, like, play this game of like random Mets? And it's amazing, isn't it? Like, how many have like fond memories and places in our hearts that, like, if you told somebody who's not part of this like fandom or this insanity, they would think you're nuts. Like, why do you care about this player? Does that happen to you also over the years? Oh, definitely. Like, I'll mention someone. You know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of someone from the '99 team, which is my my favorite Met team of my lifetime, and I can remember just about everyone. And then, you know, you talk about a couple of years ago, I can't remember anyone who passed through. I mean, I can remember a few, but not certainly not as many as the 99 team. Uh, and I can remember, you know, uh, I can think I was watching a uh, 2000 division series game and Rick White pitched. Rick this, White. Is the Benny Agba- yes. this is the Benny, this was the Benny Agbiani, um 13th inning home run walk-off against the Giants. And Rick White pitched two great innings. I think he struck out like Barry Bonds to end the, the top of the 13th or something. I'm like, Gosh, I remember him. I didn't remember he did that in that division series game and wound up getting the the victory. So, um, and I think about this year and and I, you know, twenty years from now, you know, who, like you said, who knows what how, how it all ends. But if you think of like, he, certainly better than just a role player. But like Mark Canna is going to get uh, a lot of remembrance because of his clutch hitting. Um, to me, David Peterson has been a godsend. Amazing. Doing what he did, especially Amazing. especially when Scherzer, especially yes. when Scherzer was out. 
Trevor Williams just kind of being that Swiss army knife in terms of starting and coming in long relief. So I think you're going to, you know, these guys are, this is not going to end in terms of down the line. You go like, Oh, remember that player who is going to get maybe largely forgotten. If they win, they win at all. It's, 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 they're going to get, you know, you know, up on a pedestal, but um, those are those players that you just like, they did small things, but to you, they're they're huge. Kirk Newenheis, right, with the game-winning homer. They might write some of those moments. And now, we never forget, unfortunately, we never forget Jeremy Burnitz or Mel Rojas or Braden Looper or Mondo Benitez or, you know, Kevin Apier or, like, however many other guys you want to come up. I mean, there are so many. Um, a lot of these names that we're going to bring up are big-time names in Met lore, but I like the list we put together because I think they're all underrated for different reasons. So let's begin top 10 most underrated Mets of all time at number 10 with Johnny Franco. Um, first of all, we deal with Timmy Trumpet right now, and I'm not comparing it, but Johnny Be Good, and I'm a huge Back to the Future guy, was one of the great walkout tunes ever. Like, between, you know, Al Leiter, who may or may not be on our list, right, from Tom's River with Springsteen with Born to Run, and John Fr- like we we had some of the great, like, tunes that, like, in their own right, if you were a Met fan, like, you were just locked into. When you think of John Franco, you think of almost Mr. Met because he's from the area, because of 9-11 and 9 right, and all of that. But he gets underrated, and I want to start with the longevity. 14 years. I don't know mm-hmm. what the list is, but how many Mets have even played for that long with the franchise? Cannot be many. His longevity, Brian, has got to be almost where we start with Johnny Franco. Yeah, I mean, the only other person I could think of who played longer would be like Ed Cranepool. Um, and he was not, you know, in a full-time role for, for part of that time. So, I mean, you never, you would never see a pitcher um, be of his type be the closer or a high leverage reliever for... Uh, for one, t- you would never see a pitcher be a high leverage reliever for like one team for that long. And you would never see a reliever or closer like him where he was more finesse, not like Edwin Diaz throwing 103 miles an hour down the middle. Um, he was a guy who was, like I said, finesse pitcher who would drive you nuts occasionally, but more or less got the job done, uh, got, got saves, you know, with regularity, even for bad teams. Uh, he led the league in saves in 1990, which was his first year as a Met. Uh, led up with the led um, led the league in saves with in '94 with 30 and had 30 or more saves as a Met five times over those 14 seasons. So you know we talk about Benitez, Rojas, Braden Looper, go on and on for all the bad relievers. About Jorge bad. Julio. I mean, I'm just coming up with the names. Oh my yeah. goodness. Oh my uh, goodness. Yeah, we 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 should probably give praise to the ones that were good. Oh, and John Franco was good for a while. Without a doubt. And and there is something to the fact that you just knew like he loved being a Met. Like, I don't know. I'm sure other fan bases are this way. And I'm this way, you know, with other teams that I root for, but not to the level in this category of of the Mets. There's something about these Mets. It's why Bartolo Colon, look, the home run, yes, the size and all of that. But the fact that he wanted to keep coming back and not retire and just wanted to be a Met, that's what makes him now so beloved. Like, he loved being a Met. Like, that's all he ever wanted to do. The fact that Daniel Murphy came back, and even though he was with DC and we all know it, he never wanted to leave. And he was so excited to come back, and you saw him getting a mo- Like, that is, that's the kind of thing we love. And John Franco probably you know, epitomizes that more than anybody. 
He's at number nine. Uh, we got a lot of pitchers and a lot of catchers on this list. And at number nine is our first catcher. And what what were the uh, what were they the people in the stands? I don't remember how he referenced it, and I can't even remember what they were called. The people for Todd Hundley, like he had his own like like pack of people. I don't even remember what they were. But Todd Hundley was in a time period where the Mets were not very good. Clearly, the best player, and clearly the most recognizable player. And it was during a time where. I remember, like, you know, there are times with this franchise, Brian, where, like, they're barely on national TV. And, like, you know, if they ever were, it was his face. It was Todd Hundley in the Mets. I mean, he was the only guy that was anything. His chase for the home run for, for catchers. Before we get to what happened with Piazza, because I want to get into that, because that's part of why Hundley became so underrated. Why do you think Todd Hundley gets forgotten as much as he he's, he does? Because I, I still think he does. Even though there are Met fans who probably had him as their favorite player for a while, he still gets forgotten. Yeah, and I'm one of them. I had him. He was my favorite player. I was, you know, a kid in the 90s, and I grew up in D.C., and the Mets were not on national TV all that much when they were. He was, as you said, the, the face of that team. Uh, and, and, and I think he gets, you know, look, he had the most – home runs by any Met in the 90s. I didn't realize how long he played with the Mets. He played them for 90 through 98, um, but but had the most home runs of any Met in the 90s. Uh, for a time, had the most home runs by any Met in a single season when he hit 41 in 96 and broke the record for, for most home runs by a catcher. Um, and then, you know, 96 and 97 were the, one of the best two-year stretches by a power hitter in Mets history. But it's because I think of the steroid era that he gets kind of that those numbers get, you know, kind of sure. uh, uh, and 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 the insertion of Piazza, the trade for Piazza, basically rendering Hundley useless, so to speak, um, that, that that gets he gets overshadowed. Yeah, I mean, where where would you rank Todd Hundley in left field in terms of the worst? So immediately I think of Roger Cedeno, which is the irony of Roger Cedeno being how fast he ran, yet still how terrible an outfielder he was. Daniel Murphy, when he was anywhere, let's be honest, uh, but in left field even, right? It, the shortstop that wasn't Wilmer Flores, Mike Piazza at first base. And I don't say a catcher because he called a way better game than people give him credit for. We know he couldn't throw runners out, right? Like, is Todd Hundley in left field in your lifetime the worst fielder at any position that the Mets have tried to put out there? Yeah, that was the most unusual experiment. I, I was at a game at Shea Stadium in 98. It was actually against the Dodgers. And I think there were at least two instances in which, I mean, it was an adventure. It was an adventure. I think there was twice where he just couldn't catch a fly ball. Not to his fault. I mean, he was a catcher. It's not like he was supposed to be out there in left field. So, um, you know, it was it was rough, but I mean, it was all the Mets doing. It wasn't like, you know, he was just he just was supposed to be out there and couldn't field. But I mean, it was probably the weirdest experiment. I mean, when there have been a lot, as you had noted, I mean, Dom Smith got in left field. He became a, a lot better. You're uh, better than field, Hundley. Still. You're better still, than yeah, still an, still an adventure. Todd Hundley was not. Todd Hundley was Mike Morse in left field, and that's maybe the worst fielder yeah. I've ever seen. As bad as Adam Dunn was, Mike Morse might have been the left, worst left fielder I've oh. ever seen. And Todd Hundley was, I mean, he made Daniel Murphy look like a gold glover out there. That's how bad. But mm -hmm. you felt, plus you got catcher knees and a catcher, like, you know, catchers are not those kind of athletes outside of a few. Like Jason Kendall is one thing. Todd Hundley is another. Like there was not going to happen. So 
he gets forgotten. And I think, you know, and I, I've said this to you before, and I've, I've said this to friends of mine who were you know, huge with me going all those games. I felt bad for him at the time because people kind of forgot about him. And, and really, he was like the ex-girlfriend that just nobody cared about anymore because you had the new one in Piazza and, and away you go. But Todd Hundley at nine. So John Franco at 10, Todd Hundley at nine. At number eight, maybe the most emotional player the Mets have, have ever had. And he was on the mound and he grew up a Met fan and he was from Jersey and came into Born to Run. And everything about El Leiter, who I still know and love, everything about him I loved as a Met. He still is another guy, loved being a Met. Um, what will you remember most about Leiter and why does he belong? Because I'm we're in agreement, put this list together together, but what why do you think he's so underrated still as a Met in a lot of ways? Well, I think we just talked about the steroid era and the inflated offensive numbers. And you're just, if you're a pitcher during that time, your stats, I mean, unless you're like Pedro Martinez, your stats or Greg Maddox, your stats are going to get um, kind of I inflated because of that. That being said, 1998, his first year with the Mets was exceptionally good, even by the standards of that time. I mean, a 2.47 ERA. And his ERA plus, which is like, you know, your ERA based on the rest of the league was 170. So he was 70% better than than the average uh, pitcher then. So 170 is fantastic. Finished sixth in the Cy Young Award voting. Uh, but other than that, I remember him for, you know, pitching just about every big game uh, during those postseason runs in 99, 2000. And then, you know, can't forget the, the game in Cincinnati, the one game playoff for the wild card, uh, the best game he ever pitched in the best game, one of the best games any Mets ever pitched. So I just remember that he was out there for every big game. Didn't get um, a lot of wins, uh, if you want, you know, if that, that that's important to anyone. But I remember he just had some tough luck uh, losses in the postseason, despite some great performances. But yeah, you never, you never, uh, um, you were never, you never knew, you, you you were never confused by his emotion because he was, he was real. He was out there telling you exactly how he felt. And I love that. And that, and that was New York and that was the Mets. And I would say, just to your point, I, I thought in 99 and 2000, which are two years we'll talk about a lot today, the, the three best pitching performances in whatever order you want to put them in those two years. And I'm curious your take on this. I thought in whatever order were Lighter's game in Cincy, Bobby Jones's one hitter and Mike Hampton's three hit shutout against the Cardinals. I mean, I, I thought those were probably because of the importance of them, the three best pitching performances they got. But the other thing that people forget is that lighter against the Yankees, like that was one of those like, you know, look, I'm I'm not comparing this to Serena Williams in a loss, which we just watched. Right. And like learning as much in a loss about a competitor as you can in a win. But lighter gave everything he had in that game, gave them a chance to win. And look, those Yankee teams, like we don't want to give them any credit. That was difficult to hold that team at all. And Al wasn't overpowering. He was getting you with that cutter. Obviously, we remember right against righties. But I always thought that his fearlessness and his toughness, to your point of his emotion, were always like, and those aren't stats, so it's really hard to write quantify that. But I, I always thought he became a fan favorite, and I'm curious your thought on it, more because of the way he was than even the way he pitched. Yeah, I think uh, I think he was kind of I think when people can relate to the people out in the field, um, you know, sometimes and we'll, we'll get to other players who kind of don't act like it's a big effort to do something on the field. Maybe you can't relate to that person and therefore it's harder to 
uh, to embrace them. But Al Leiter felt like he was, it was, I don't want to say a struggle, but he was out there giving everything he had. Um, and I think that's, therefore, that combined with being a local um, local product um, meant it meant it meant something to Mets fans. And then again, going to like the John Franco quotient, he wanted to be a Met. He loved being a Met. Um, I think that all that combined uh, and the fact that he was just good um, really factored in. And, and yeah, that game five against the Yankees, I mean, game one against the Yankees, he pitched very well. Game five, I think he got up to like 146 pitches, which is just, just insane. Um, I, I almost remember that um, that loss more fondly than I do a lot of other, you know, wins or by from, from somebody else. I'm with you on that. And I think that's where aces get defined in those kind of performances. We've seen a lot of those out of the Wainwrights and the Sabathias. And I'm bringing up aces who aren't at the Pedro level and the guys who don't get enough credit to which Wayno and Sabathia are two that I think of in that kind of category who deliver that kind of an outing. Uh, Lester at eight, uh, Lester, Joe Lester, speaking of lefties <laughs> with cutters, uh, Al Leiter, uh, at least he could hold runners a little better than John could. Hello, Terrence score the Met net hero now. Um, Jerry Grody at number seven for Met fans who are younger and a lot of them who are watching, listen to this are, what do they need to know about Jerry Grody and why they need to know more about him? Well, yeah, if you look at his stats, his, you know, offensive production, you're not going to be that impressed, but that was, uh, he was on a Mets team in the late sixties, early seventies. That was, uh, reliant on, great pitching and great defense and being on the 1969 Mets just automatically gets you, you know, elevated to hero status. Uh, but I think Jerry Grody deserves even more credit um, than he, than he gets. Um, like I said, pitching and defense, uh, he was tough on those pitchers and those were young pitchers. I mean, we see how great Kuzman and Seaver were, but, but they were young. I mean, they were just, you know, first, second, third year pitchers. Um, you know, he was tough on them. Uh, but they swore by him and he probably swore at them. <laughs> he definitely swore at them. He was a, he was very, very tough behind the plate. So yeah, looking at stats are irrelevant. He's an impact player on those teams and his leadership um, and his leadership is invaluable. His defense was invaluable throwing runners out. I remember there was a quote by Johnny Bench um, who was the best defensive catcher ever. Uh, I think we can pretty much agree on, on that. And you know, yes. maybe him or Ivan Rodriguez. Yeah. Uh, there's be the only other that, guy. Yes. Yeah, there's a quote uh, that he, he said about uh, Jerry Grody. He said, if Grody was on the Reds, I'd be playing third base. So that that speaks to how great Jerry Grody was on defense. And to your point, was kind of, Brian, like an identity guy. Really, everything about him really told you everything about the team. And honestly, it's very similar to our, our guy in John Sturz at number six because he was very similar that way. And, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, Unfortunately, Mike Piazza not only ruined Todd Hundley at the time because he took his job, but every other Met catcher ever because like it's like, no, they didn't have those kind of numbers, right? Nobody else mm -hmm. was putting those up. But Stearns, and so good to see him at Old Timers Day and to be able to do that in terms of health-wise, he's so beloved. I mean, hearing you, – you mentioned quotes from other people. When you hear teammates talk about him, it's like, okay – you now almost got to go back and look deeper into what he did because they're so fond of what he meant in that room and, and on the field. Yeah. No, as you said, great to see him at old timers day. I've forgotten that he had been going through health issues. So it was nice to see him get such a great ovation and, and hope the best for him going forward. But yeah, he gets overlooked because he was in between, you know, Jerry Grody and Gary Carter. And then you have Hunley and, and Piazza later on. So he gets kind of, lost in the shuffle 
Um, and that was during a period in which there weren't many, you know, very good Mets. Uh, but he was an all-star four times. And, uh, you know, like I said, not a lot of great Mets to choose from, but it definitely was deserved. Um, he was a better than league average hitter five times, uh, which as we know now is, is, is much needed from the catching position. Uh, sometimes you don't always get that. Um, and also he stole 91 bases and 20, which I had no idea by the way, until you told me the first time that we did this, I had no idea about that. That nuts. Yeah. I, you know, they say, you know, the old line is fast for a catcher, but he was actually a good base runner. He stole 25 in 1978, which is just remarkable for, for a catcher. Number 10, Johnny Franco. Number nine, Todd Hundley. Al Leiter at eight, Jerry Grody at seven, John Stearns at six, and the poor man's Greg Maddox, Rick Reed, at number five. Um, and, I, and I say that you know, tongue-in-cheek because even though that used to get thrown on him, the reason for people who are young who did not watch Rick Reed was because you know one of the great things about Greg Maddox, and I always used to say it was like, a first of all, when he had his glasses on, he looked and then spoke this way. Like he was like, like, a, like a doctor or a teacher. Like it wasn't even like he was a pitcher he didn't have overpowering stuff. I'm not saying Rick Reed had Maddox's changeup. He did not or his control. Cause no one did, but Rick Reed was getting you with, with guile and with really the simplistic nature of changing eye levels four quadrants and spotting a fastball early in account, all the things that everyone else is trying to do, but he couldn't get behind because he couldn't overpower you with a DeGrom fastball. If he was three, one or two, Oh, in account or spot a curve, but he wasn't going to do that kind of thing. But his consistency level is so underrated that to me, he is right where he belongs on this list because people don't realize that in large part because he was always that number three guy, right? He's the Chris Bassett of then is probably the comp, right? Rick Reed was the I know what I'm getting, Brian, out of the Mets in a starting rotation for almost every year that he started for that team. Yeah, he was definitely that bulldog uh, mentality who would just get you through a game and always give you a good start. It wouldn't be, you wouldn't get like a you know, ridiculously bad one. Uh, a great story as uh, a replacement player um, back in the you know after the strike, um, and who who I didn't I can't even think of how many replacement players eventually became regular big leaguers. But I can think of any. Few. Honestly, I yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he and he turned into a like a number three in a in a rotation uh, for a team that was in the postseason two years in a row. So um, you know, I didn't realize how good his 1998 was. I mean, he was in, uh, or I'm sorry, his 97. He was an All Star in '98, um, and also an All Star in 2001 um, as in his last year with the Mets before he got traded. But '97 was especially good. He was 2.89 ERA, uh, 141 ERA plus. Um, he only walked 31 and then in 98, he only walked 29. So we talk about great control. Um, that was, that was certainly the case. Those, uh, that those two years, um, but the game I remember he pitched, um, that was to me most significant was late in the season, uh, in 1999 against Pittsburgh. Uh, I think there were two games back of the wild card and maybe a game back at the time. Uh, they needed that win and he pitched a complete game. Um, just a huge, huge performance. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I never remember a bad Rick Reed start. I mean, I'm not, you know, that, that 99 game I remember stands out because of how important it was, but, uh, but yeah, you could always count on him for, for a good pitching performance and, and not overpowering, but he got it done. All three of those games against Pittsburgh were close. All were crazy. And my favorite lasting memory is, is in that last game, I think it was Brad Klontz, who was the pitcher who throws the wild pitch to score a run. And if you watch getting caught on camera, not always good. Mike Piazza 
it literally you're in the midst of like you, you won, like you're going to the next day. And Piazza was upset. Like he throws his arms up, like as if to say, like, what the hell? I couldn't go ahead and knock runners in. And there's a great interview somewhere you can find on YouTube where Robin Ventura is making fun of that, which is fantastic. Um, overshadowed also an issue at number four for John Matlack because right. I mean, kind of similarities in terms of he's on another team. If the other pitchers aren't in front of him, if you don't have that kind of cushion of you're not the star, right, Brian? So we're not paying attention to you. Maybe more people would know just how great Matt Locke was during those years. Yeah. I mean, he's just, he is the number, definitely the number three in this big three with Seaver and Kuzman, but um, he was the rookie of the year in 1972 and the best pitcher for the Mets in 1973 down to the last month when they really needed uh, big pitching performances when they were in the race for the NL East and eventually won it. Um, he was their he was their top starter. Um, made three straight All Star games from seventy four through seventy six. Um, if you take away his last season with the Mets seventy seven, that was the uh, then he didn't have an ERA um, above three point five. So he was he was remarkably consistent. One year in particular that I want to point out uh, in which he was Jacob Degrom before Jacob Degrom was in nineteen seventy four. Uh, he led the league in shutouts. Uh, he led the league in fielding independent pitching. Uh, he had a 2.41 ERA. Uh, his ERA plus was at 149. And for that, his final record was 13 wins and 15 losses. Which way so back didn't, when didn't yeah. get any credit, but now would have been looked at totally differently, right? You talk about being in the wrong era. Yeah, he probably would have gotten today, probably would have gotten Cy Young votes. And back then they were like, well, you only got, you had a losing record. So no, we're not going to vote for you. So the dinosaurs have the, yeah. And that's how you get underrated because a lot of that is right. Everybody's not looking at the right statistics. And, and, you know, again, it's ironic because in Hundley's case, going way back at number nine, it's like we probably respected it more before we kind of look back at the steroid era. Now, and the further you get away, the less it's been respected, right? In this mm-hmm. case, you would hope much more so for a guy like Matlack. Franco at 10, Todd Hundley at nine, Al Leiter at eight, Jerry Grody at seven, John Sturz at six, Rick Reed at five, John Matlack at four, and then at number three, Carlos Beltran. Carlos Beltran, to me, his career as a Met, is as follows one horrific year after he had played people forget he had played in Kansas city in a small market where they have two beat writers. And then he had one postseason with Houston where he hit the eight home runs and then he signs the big contract. And then he's thrust into New York was worse than Francisco Lindor was in his first year. Um, but just like Tino Martinez, who a lot of people forget when he was taken over for Donnie did not play well and was not good initially before the 44 homers and the big postseasons, Right. Just like a lot of other sports, it happens when guys come to New York and fail. Beltron took a year, and I remember it was eight games into the second season. They were already booing him. They gave him like a week. And he was able to have the fortitude, like Edwin Diaz. Here's another guy, right? Uh, came from a small place, Seattle. Okay, how do I do it? And ironically, he would have been Diaz's manager if things had been different. Um, but Beltron, to me, after the first year, and I know you can't take it out. Even as a composite, for me, I, I think of Mike Piazza, David Wright, and I think of Carlos Beltran in terms of position players, right? After the mm-hmm. first year, he was probably the most consistent hitter the Mets ever had. Oh, I think so. I think so, absolutely. Um, you know, it's. I think fans have come to appreciate Beltran for what he did as a player, even what, uh, even what after what, you know, since 
you know, 2006 NLCS strike three, um, even after what happened with the situation uh, in Houston that led to him not being the Mets manager. Um, I, I, that said, I still don't think people realize how good he was. He's the best free agent signing the Mets ever made. Ever. Uh, he's the best center fielder the, the Mets ever had. Uh, and as you said, top three position player in Mets history. Uh, you take, like I said, you, like you said, take 2005 away. Fantastic. 2006, that second year, I mean, he was MVP level. Um, and he tied Hudley's record for home runs in a season, drove in 116 runs and was fourth in MVP voting. And then on top of that, he was a terrific fielder, uh, fantastic range, uh, just, you know, never made anything look difficult out there in the outfield and won three gold gloves uh, for that. So he was just uh, all around, you know, five-tool player, as they say. Yeah, I look, and I, I could say it's because he, he's actually a, a friend. He's one of the good dudes in the game. But Mike Cameron, who was a hell of a center fielder himself, and thank God they survived what happened in San Diego, but, you know, there weren't many guys in that time period who were going to move him over to right field. Uh, so, you know, it, the, the whole situation with Beltron, the fact that he was so good and consistent is one thing. The other thing is he was so clutch. Like, everybody thinks about the Wainwright at bat, but I, I remember the, the 12th inning homer against the Phillies late in the year. There were so many times where he was coming up with clutch at bats. His base stealing... I don't know how it is now, but I think when he retired, he was the most, I think, like accurate or effective or whatever word you want to use, successful base dealer percentage wise, I think with whatever the minimum is of, of like all time. He never got thrown out. And because of what you pointed out in the outfield, it was just, he ran like a gazelle, like the strides were, it didn't even look like he was trying to run hard. He got crapped on so much for that Wainwright at bat. And I think, because of the money he got paid. And that's really what it is. If he had come up a Met and was homegrown and that happened, it would have been forgotten. You know it as well as I do. Because he got paid, it was, well, in that spot, right? I don't care what you did all year. That's your spot to hit a home run, right? Nobody got it. I love Cliffy. Cliffy, who was, I think, the AB right before that, or anybody else who hit the whole game. It wasn't like, you know, by the way, there was a whole game that led up to that, right? People forgot all of that. And just remember this one at bat, but he was way more clutch, I think, Brian, than people give him credit for as a Met over the years. Oh, yeah. And I remember uh, I remember his at bat against the Cardinals in August of that year. He had a two. It was a two run homer to win it. Um, and that is I was his defining moment of the season up up until the NLCS. And yeah, you said he never got caught. I mean, I'm looking at his stats. He got like never. Right. 2006, he got caught stealing three times 2007 two, 2008 three 2009 one although it was you know shortened a little bit uh, so yeah i mean he was just he just knew when to steal sometimes that's almost as good as just you know being really fast it's just knowing when to steal a base as well so we're talking about you know, guys who when when you could do everything def- five tool is is the most overrated you know, overused term it's not overrated it's overused it's put on guys who don't you know, I remember Alex Ochoa was supposed to be a five tool. Speaking of like annoying names of the past from the Mets, right? Um, but this guy was it. I mean, he did everything well, everything on a baseball field. Beltron at three. Number two is a guy who was unassuming, and I still believe had maybe I'd have to think about it, but maybe the best, the sweetest swing to watch of any Met during our lifetime, and that's John Olrude, who he was so good. And the thing that stands out to me about old rude that people don't talk about enough 
everybody talks about Robin Ventura. Look, I love Robin Ventura, right? And he would be on here if we didn't talk about the Grand Slam single a thousand million times because everybody, because of that, nothing he did was ever underrated. And I love Robin. He drove in 120 runs, won a gold glove. He had all kinds of, in, in what, three, four years, whatever it was with the Mets. But everybody talks about that infield and they talk about Ventura. And Olerud, Ventura would be the first one to tell you, was the, was the biggest reason the other three guys were as good as they were. He was as good a defensive first baseman, other than Keith, other than Keith, obviously, that the Mets have ever had. Rico Brony was great, too, but Olerud was, was brilliant. But, Brian, he was so big in those games in 99. People forget. Go to the NLCS, and they're back-to-back games. He hits home runs. One that I think was off Smoltz to open a game. He hit a home run off Maddox in that series. He was so big in that run of September into – for all the, you know, all the Mike Piazza's here and what's Hunley going to do and Robin Ventura hits this and everything else that went on, John Olrood was probably the best hitter during those two months and no one ever even discusses it when they look back at 99. It's crazy to me. Yeah, I think uh, now we're giving a little more appreciation to players, especially back then, who contributed in other ways other than just hitting, you know, hitting it over the fence, uh, whether it was fielding or getting on base, drawing walks, getting, you know, singles, what have you. And John Oler, I think, is at the forefront of that, um, uh, you know, uh, retro uh, retroactive appreciation. Um, you know, it was only three years in New York, but it was three just terrific years. He had an on-base percentage over 425 and OPS plus of 142. And 99 was really clutch. I remember he hit a NLDS home run against Randy Johnson. No one, no left-hander hits a home run. He had home runs off Johnson, Smoltz, and Maddox in that postseason. (laughs) Think about that. Oh, um, but 98, uh, even though the Mets missed the postseason by a game, he was, that was, especially ridiculous. He had the highest batting average by a Met in a single season, uh, the highest on-base percentage by a Met in a single season at 447. Which is crazy. His OPS, and his OPS plus was 163. So you take all of that, you take his, you know, as you said, his fielding, um, you know, he's getting, getting more deserved praise, not just for his Met career, but I think his overall career. Um, because it's, it, it's so overlooked and because it happened in the nineties, it's just like, we just forget it. We just forget about it because, oh, he wasn't, yeah. you know, Barry Bonds or Mark McGuire hitting no. a bunch of home runs, but he was and getting he was, on base. He was and Brian, he's he so unassuming that like, I mm-hmm. don't know the reason he wasn't an old timers day, but I would almost guarantee you, he like thanked Jay Horowitz for like, and said like, I'm just wherever I am in my, my humble home with my family doing whatever. And I don't want even. Like, he just didn't want any of that, right? But for a guy like that, that mentality to succeed at the level he did in New York is amazing. Like, people have this idea that you have to have, like, some brash personality, right? Like, people would be like, and I'm trying to think of, like, a million guys that that people have said, well, this guy wouldn't survive in New York and that guy couldn't survive in New York. John Olward's personality you would never think would survive in New York, and he didn't seem to be phased by anything, literally nothing. So it's amazing. And it's part of right. What underrated him was almost going back to Al Leiter, right? The way he acted made him more beloved. I think the way John Olrood acted made you respect him more, but almost you unappreciated because he didn't do anything to make you pay attention to him except wear the helmet. I mean, honestly, that was like the one thing, right? I mean, my swing was his personality. Sweet, right? Sweet and pretty, but like, Okay, next, right? No bat flips from John Olrood. 
You know, what I'm saying? No. <laughs> you know that was the helmet was his distinguishing feature, and you know, I think he I, I didn't he take this, you know, like Mark Canada, didn't he take the subway to a game? Uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone rec- did anyone recognize him. Probably I don't know. not. I mean, yeah. honestly, like people barely heard him talk, but he was just so great, and I'm and I'm glad that we give him credit here. Ten John Franco, nine Todd Hundley, eight Al Leiter, Jerry Grody at seven, John Stearns at six. Rick Reed at five, John Matlock at four, Carlos Beltran at three, John Olbert at two, and at number one, Hojo. Howard Johnson is not only the most underrated Met of all time, but he may have been one of the more underrated players in that era that he played. And I know we talked about this before, and I always say this, like when family member, when I, anytime I'm discussing Howard Johnson, it's very Hundley-like in this way. Like, Hundley got screwed when Piazza came in. Howard Johnson got screwed because everyone else was out, was leaving. And it was the after-86 season. And he wasn't Ray Knight, who, you know, look, small time period, but we understand what he did, right? He wasn't Daryl Strawberry. And then it was always, well, the disappointment of Doc or Daryl and what's going on off the field, not the the performance of Howard Johnson trying to keep them in things, right? What he was doing on the field. How much was Hojo a victim of just kind of almost being like seemingly a year or two off from being the guy that we would remember from that time period? Yeah. Howard Johnson had three 30, 30 seasons and they were all in years in which the Mets were disappointing or underachieving or completely falling apart. Um, Cause 87 was his breakout year. Of course, just, you know, the year after the world series. Um, and then he had a, another, you know, this next one came in 89, which might be the best offensive season in Mets history. Uh, that's up for debate with like guys like John Olrood and, and, uh, Piazza and, and Beltron, and whoever else you want. Yeah. Yeah. And Beltron. So, um, and then in 91, the Mets completely fell apart at the end of the year. And that was uh, the year he led the league, I think in home runs and RBI. So like they have two of the three triple crown categories. He was leading the national league in. So, I mean, if he, if these happened in any, in, in 86 or 88, he'd be an MVP candidate and might win the MVP, but it just, the timing was off and, you know, we, we look at those three seasons, and then we look at, like, his overall rankings. He's still in the fourth in Mets history in home runs. He's still fourth in runs batted in, and he's third in stolen bases behind uh, Reyes and, and Mookie. So, you know, it's uh, it's just it just happened that it was post-World Series, it, the, you know, the, the, you know, the continued missing of the postseason or missing the World Series again when they were supposed to. And just being there when everything was kind of going downhill um, gets Howard Johnson overlooked. And it's completely because of his past uh, falling out with the Wilpon era or regime uh, is why he's an egregious omission from the Mets Hall of Fame. That should be rectified rather soon. But it's it's just he just gets completely overlooked. Again, he got completely overlooked by the the franchise uh, by not putting him in the Mets Hall of Fame. But um but yeah, he's he's way up there in so many offensive categories and and doesn't get the uh, the respect I think he deserves. And with Steve Cohen, you kind of almost feel like that'll be rectified in some way because he just has found a way to one thing after another, right? Knock everything off from the black jerseys to, you know, obviously and lots in between this. But Willie Mays in his retirement in most recent terms, um, John Franco at 10, Todd Hundley at nine, Al Leiter at eight, Johnny, Jerry Grody at seven, John Stearns at six, Rick Reed at five. John Matlack at 
four, Carlos Beltran at three, Olrud at two, Hojo at number one. I want to close this way because I feel like to at least kind of put a, a, a final touch and, and a spin on it because you spent so much time paying attention to Mets history, right? You mentioned it. We talked about like your, and it's, I, Favorite and best are two different things, right? You can have a favorite and it, it, first of all, best is even an opinion in a lot of cases because what stats are you looking at and all of that for player or team, but you mentioned your favorite team, maybe being 99, right? And the favorite run that the, the, the Mets had, where does this team right now? And we don't know how they finished the last 27, 28 games, right? I know how many games over 500 they are for since 88, right? They got a chance clearly to chase down the 108 from 86. Uh, they'd have to go 23 and six in their last 29, which with this schedule is actually doable. Uh, they're probably going to win about 105 games, which is still, by the way, pretty darn good. Where do you put them now? Like how far up are they in terms of the best Met teams ever from, from how much you've kind of gone through 69, 73, 99, 2000, 2006, right? Which is the 88 which are kind of the group of the other teams. Yeah. I mean, I can never even, you know, not knowing what's going to happen. I still can't go like above the two world series teams. It's just like, it's, it's almost like it's just impossible to do that right now. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's, but I would say it's better than, than, I would say it's better than 88. Um, I think the 88 team, if I'm, if I'm recalling, I mean, they had a stretch in like the middle of the year where they were just kind of, kind of like a 500 team. I mean, they started really hot and they ended really hot in between. They were kind of okay. 99 had the same problem. 2015 had the same problem. I, yeah, I think this team has been so consistent. They haven't lost more than three games in a row, which is insane, uh, which is just remarkable, remarkable run of consistency that it, it needs that needs to be recognized in terms of, of just how steady this team has been. Because everyone, you know, everyone on Mets Twitter just thinks that everything is going to be the end and going to be the end. You know, the season ended, of course, 60 different times. Yeah, of course. So, right. And everyone who wants to do that have been, has been proven wrong. Um, and the culture, you know, a big part of that, plus. not to interrupt, but the culture, which we can't put in a stat sheet, but Buck and Max and Escobar even, and, and those guys and what they've done, Canna, the way they are, they have completely changed. I, I, I said this many years ago because I was covering it and watching it at the time. I remember Jim Leland was a Tiger manager for like a week and he like was throwing tables, freaking out after a loss. And he did it on purpose because he wanted the team to realize we're not accepting losing anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. This team won't collapse. They may lose the division. They may lose in the first. Who knows what's going to happen? But it won't be in the old way. And I think a lot of that mm-hmm. is culture. I would put it this way for, for me. I think when you talk about pitching, it's the best pitching that they've had since 86. It's hard to say otherwise. I think mm-hmm. the lineup is in some places really great, in some places really not. The lineup in 2006 was better than this. The lineup in 1999 was better than this. And to me, I think if we're going like from the 80s to here, the two best lineups I think the Mets had were 99 and and in 2006. I mean, the 2006 lineup when they were healthy, people don't remember. They should go look. I mean, think about the names we're talking about with Reyes at his peak and David Wright and Carlos Beltran and Delgado and Cliff Floyd. I mean, are you kidding me? And even LaDuca, like they didn't have any weaknesses anywhere. And 99, when you had all... Ricky Henderson, Alfonso, Olerud, Piazza, Ventura, like good luck, right? I mean, it was ridiculous. Mm -hmm. The bullpen here 
is also it's really it's 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 weird because Diaz is so much better than what you and I are used to, but the rest of the bullpen isn't really very good. So you know, I, I haven't kind of figured out where to kind of composite them, but I think to your point, there until they make the World Series, right? You can't go ahead of the others. I think they're mm. probably a better team, a better team than '88, a better team than '99, a better team than 2000. I think they have better pitching than 2006. I don't think starting pitching. When you go back to 2006 and Billy Wagner at the back end in that lineup, and I know they didn't win the World Series, but look, this team hasn't either yet. I don't know if they're necessarily a better team overall than that team right now. They're starting pitching, which is clearly most important, and you hope will be the differentiator. Because remember, Oliver Perez started the game that they lost, and Aaron Heilman was in there, right? So, right? I don't know that they're a better team yet than 2006. 2006, I think, gets underrated. I know they lost to the Cardinals, but that team was the best team in baseball. They should have won. That was a disappointment to me that they didn't. That team was that good. Yeah, I think I think 2006, it's weird because it, it, the league that year, I think the Mets were, you know, compared to the rest of the teams in the league, the Mets were the best team. Absolutely. Where this year, you compare to, you know, Dodgers, the Dodgers Braves, are, are going to win 113. Right? Yeah. It's just it's more it's more even, but I feel like the Mets can be or I I feel are a better just overall team than 2006. I think the pitching especially takes sure. them over the top. I mean, I just have the lineup. The 2006 lineup is my is 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 was so good. It may be the uh, best like, lineup the know, Mets have ever had. Yeah, right. But I feel like speed pitch, wise too yeah, with Reyes so. and Beltron, oh, yeah. right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, but I think like the the overall just I don't know it's just the overall lack. I mean, honestly, there's a lack of you know there's no there are weak spots, but I feel like it's just that the composite group uh, is better than 2006. Where I feel like 2006, this the pitching it was just like I mean, all due respect to Steve Traxel, I mean I was oh, not of course, I, of course, no, of course, and a better manager, and I like Willie, and I think Willie gets crapped yeah. on, and he's been underrated, yeah. I believe. I mean, yes. it really, he was way better than only getting four years as the manager of the Mets. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous, to be honest. He got screwed for a lot of, even though Guillermo Moda was in a game he shouldn't have been. You know, it wasn't his fault that Wagner gave up a home run to Sotaguchi. It's like, you know, I mean, it's like people like remember what they want to remember. Like, I love Billy Wagner. No one ever brings that up. Billy Wagner gave up two huge home runs. Like, Jerry's familiar, we remember. But somehow with Alex Gordon, right, we forgot Billy Wagner. Sotaguchi. I mean, really? Yeah. I mean, come on. So what? Uh, Brian, appreciate yeah. you. Uh, thanks for running this back again. Uh, as I said in the last one, but I'll say this time now that everyone will hear. Uh, at the end of the season, I want to come back and do, and, and we'll we'll discuss it, you and I, whether or not it's the overrated or most aggravating. Um, something something that allows us to delve into, because I think the reaction and the Twitter responses of some of the names that we forget on the lists of like pains in the asses in Mets history, because there are so many. Ryan Thompson. I mean, how many guys can you think about that? Like we're supposed to be great that we're not. Um, we'll have to come back to that. In the meantime, um, I, I, in safe travels, I know you're going on vacation, uh, at least for a couple of days. And uh, you and I will uh, will recoup here in a little bit after hopefully uh, a Mets World Series. Sounds great, Casey. Looking forward to it. All right, buddy. Uh, Unfiltered Revolution. The merch is up on the site. Get me at Casey Stern. Get Brian at BrianWright86. And we will see you soon on Unfiltered. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.